Ayers on the Road, Parenting in a Modern World. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. Well, hi, Linda. Hey, on the road. We've been in the air. We've been on the Argentinian roads. They do, they do drive on the right side down there, which is a good thing. I think all of South America does, except for the English provinces. But anyway, um, we had never been to Buenos Aires, and we had so much fun. It was a fascinating, fascinating city. We learned a lot about a lot of things down there. It's a very European country, Argentina is, and Buenos Aires is a, it almost looks like a, like European architecture in a lot of the places. And we got to go to a lot of tangos. That's the main thing in Argentina is the tango, don't you think, Linda? No, actually, the main thing is Eva Perón. Evita. Man, Evita has made her mark on Argentina, and we learned so much more about that. We did, though, have a wonderful evening of tango. They, um, the group that we were with um, arranged for a huge art gallery without any pictures on the wall, it was all just lit with different gorgeous colors, and then couples came out and danced on um, stages right in front of us, these beautiful tangos. Wow, it is something. Well, that, that might have been your favorite part, Linda, but I like the polo match. We went to a world champion polo match, and how in the world do a guy that rides quarter horses and has a fairly hard time not getting bucked off how about people that ride on a 400-yard 400, 400 long polo pitch and hit a little tiny white ball with a flexible mallet? It's unbelievable. But, of course, we didn't go down there to watch the tango or to watch polo or to um, learn about Avita. We went down there to speak to a bunch of parents who were determined to try to do a better job of not entitling their children and teaching them to be responsible and to have initiative and motivation. And we sure enjoyed learning from the Latin culture on all these subjects, even though we were supposed to be the teachers who sometimes learn more than we teach. Well, actually, we did go down there to learn all that stuff, but um, the people that were there were entrepreneurs from all over the world. They were not necessarily Latin. Um, some were, but... Um, no, you're right. It was called a university for entrepreneurs, and um, they have lots of classes, but I'm pleased to say that our classes on parenting and balance were really the best attended of all, which shows you that no matter where you are in the world these days, one of the biggest things on people's minds is how do I raise kids who are motivated and responsible even when the world around them is not very motivated and not very responsible and full of violent video games and all kinds of other things that we wish weren't there? Well, the funniest part that we always learn, interestingly, is that we give people a way to set up a little economy in their own homes and have kids earn the stuff, their money for the stuff that they want and so on, and uh, to do it with um, some creative ways. But anyway, the funny part is every time we get to the end of our presentation, they say, 
What about the grandparents? The grandparents ruin our great ideas because they come along and give our kids anything they want. That our son drops his iPhone in the toilet and the grandfather just says, don't worry, I'll get you another one. You know, it really is. You know what we said? We just said, hey, that's the right of grandparents. They can spoil the kids if they want. You can't stop them and don't even try. (laughs) Just kidding. We did not. Um, Because we're approaching the holidays, I think it's a good time to say, if you are a grandparent, it's a good idea to talk to the ki- your your kids, your grown kids, about what they want their kids to have. It is really hard not to spoil your grandchildren because, hey, let's face it, when a lot of us had little kids at home, we couldn't afford to give them anything. And so now that we have a little more accessible uh, funds, it really is fun to give those kids some some good things. And so, but then you know, I. I learned right away from our eldest daughter that I was really not to give her children anything that she didn't know about. I mean, obviously little things are fine, but big things to give them an iPad, to give them, you know, if they have their their oldest is struggling with too much time on technology. So that would just be the pits if we actually popped up with some kind of technology for them. So I do think it's important to those grandparents that are listening out there to be aware that it's just a good idea to consult with your children before you buy Christmas presents for your grandchildren. Now, let's get back to Argentina for a minute because, again, this was a marvelous learning experience uh, for everyone because there were people there from all around the world, and all of them had a few things in common. They were all entrepreneurs. They all could afford to be there. I guess that alone gave them something in common. But they were all reasonably young. They were all pretty much in the age where they would have children in the home. I would say the youngest attendees were probably 30, and the oldest were probably 45 to 50. So all of them with children in the home, but from all over the world. Now, one of the things that we tried to observe whenever we're in this type of gathering and that we want to pass on to our listeners a little bit today is what are the differences in style and in aptitude and in um, priority for parents from different parts of the world? We've said many times that, that there's the, the really shocking and in a kind of a wonderful way thing about parents from around the globe is that they all have very similar desires and interests and hopes and fears for their children. But in terms of style and what they excel at, there really are a lot of differences. And I'm going to make a couple of observations, and Linda may want to add to this. By and large, parents in Latin America have the strongest family organizations, the strongest extended family ties. It's not uncommon for Latin American parents to eat together with their children every single day. Yeah. And it's not uncommon for them every weekend to be with the grandparents and all the cousins for a big Sunday sort of extravaganza and dinner, not uncommon at all. So there's this tremendous tradition. And, of course, by the way, a lot of times when Latin American families get together, it's not the evening meal. It's, it's lunch. It's, it's a late lunch. And a lot of people, even responsible leaders of companies, knock off about 
one o'clock, go home, spend a couple of hours with their families. The kids come home from school and they have their big family dinner in the middle of the day and then they go back to work, unfortunately, sometimes till quite late, and the kids go back to school. So the main family time is off in the middle of the day. But the point is they really do a good job with that. I would say that Asian parents, by and large, are the most disciplined parents, sometimes to excess, sometimes to the point where the kids are so regimented in their studies and academics is so important in Asia and getting in the right university means everything. And so they go after school to cram schools, they call them, where they, where they work on getting prepared for various tests that will determine what level or what program they'll be on in their schooling. But I would say Asian parents are very disciplined and very academically oriented. And one more thing that's a real tribute to, to most, and I know I'm generalizing, and none of these things are always true, but by and large, Asian parents seem to have the cultural norm of giving attention to positive behavior and ignoring negative behavior, just the opposite of most American parents. Most American parents seem to be, you watch them in a shopping mall, the kid who's getting all the attention is the one who's acting up. The kid who's getting ignored is the one who's behaving himself. And we shoot ourselves in the foot as parents when we do that. And whenever I talk to Asian parents, they seem to have a cultural norm of, I'm going to ignore that kid as much as I can when he's misbehaving, and I'm going to give my attention to the kid behaving positively. So I've mentioned a couple things about Latin parents and about Asian parents. Linda, what do you think? You got any comments on European parents or on well, Russian parents? <laughs> I never heard of any Russians there, but I do have to say that um, what I learned from that experience and talking to people afterwards, it's so interesting because people come up and tell you their stories after you do this hour and a half presentation. They feel like they know us by then. We're pretty laid back in our presentations and we let it all hang out and and uh, tell them that we have our struggles along with them. But they do come up afterwards and tell you what they've been through. And what I was amazed, what I'm always amazed about is that there are always problems in families. You know, we don't need to feel like we're the only one that is suffering through this or that and the other, and, and we've just gone through the Thanksgiving season. And as wonderful as that is, I'm sure there are always some issues with family members that don't feel included or don't feel comfortable or whatever. But I heard some of the most amazing stories uh, on this trip. When darling little young mother came up to me and said we were unable to have children, so we adopted two. And our four-year-old has lung disease, which means he's on oxygen 24-7, and I'm up three or four times a night adjusting his oxygen. And then we have a little two-year-old who's just been diagnosed with Asperger's, which is a form of autism. And she said, we have therapists coming in all the time. She said, you know, of course we would not change this. And of course, you know, in any family, you, you just never know what you're going to get. But it really is amazing how bravely and how valiantly and heroically they were dealing with that. Um, another family adopted a little uh, a baby whose mother was chained to the hospital bed because she was in prison. And a friend just said, please, can you take care of this baby, please? 
just until the mother gets out. And then it turns out years go by, years go by. Five years later, the, the mother comes back. She's not reformed. She's still often on drugs and demands this baby. And they've not signed any, any papers or anything. They have to give this beautiful child whom they adore as their own back to this mother. So, you know, there really are so many difficulties in life as we go through with these little children. And you never know what you're going to get. No, everyone has a story, that's for sure. And that's one of the benefits of getting parents together and having them talk to each other and commiserate a little and give each other ideas. I'm going to go back to the cultural differences because it is important to try to learn from other cultures, especially when it comes to parenting and families. And I, I think, I don't know if you'll fully agree with this, Linda, but most families we meet from Europe... And I think this is true of most families we meet from the Middle East, interestingly enough. The kids are remarkably adept at talking to adults. They're they're very polite and they're very socially conscious, much more so in general, again, I'm generalizing, than American kids. They seem to have a way of... um, looking you right in the eye and responding to your questions and asking you questions and carrying on a very adult conversation. Uh, Generally speaking, and the European kids and the Middle Eastern kids are good at that, much better than Americans who sometimes, I'm sorry to say, and I'm not putting down all American kids, but a lot of American kids look at you like, uh, duh. (laughs) <laughs> what did you just say? Or, or the problem is that they don't look at you at all. Yeah, they, they don't. Look, they they look can't down. look in your eye, yeah. And so maybe the social consciousness is extra good in European kids. Let's take a little break, and we'll come back and talk a little more about parenting around the world. And we're back. We're talking about the relative strengths and weaknesses of parents we've observed in different parts of the world. And, you know, I have to pick up where you left off before the break because we were talking about the vocabulary of children in Europe. Um, Actually, we've just done a little study of C.S. Lewis and his life. And I was astounded by the fact that he, his vocabulary, I read on a Kindle, I'm so glad because you can go to the dictionary to words that you you can't understand. And I went... About every single page, there was a word that I understand. And the interesting part for him is that he grew up with this huge vocabulary from his parents. His parents were just very well read. This guy's best friends were books, even when he was a little child. And his vocabulary was amazing. And he said people would just laugh at him. Adults would laugh at him when he, you know, when they spoke with him because his vocabulary was incredible. And he said, you know, I, I'm sorry, but it's all, that's the only way I know how to talk because that's what happened when he was home with his family. Well, and I think that that's an example, Linda, both of a geographic phenomenon and a, a timeline or historical phenomenon yeah. because kids who grew up in, you know, Lewis grew up in, the, in, in pre-war England and... Um, of course, his life revolved around books, as did many kids who grew up then. Books were the main media. Newspaper was the main media. So reading and having a vocabulary was a necessary thing. Today, unfortunately, with um, 
you know, kids' attention spans are incredibly short because they're used to getting things on a screen or getting them on Google and reading a paragraph and then moving on to something else. And so even reading a whole book is a pretty big chore for some kids, and that is unfortunate. But we are here to tell you the problem probably, in our opinion, is worse in this country than it is in a lot of other places. European kids still in whatever way it happens, and I think it has a lot to do with books and with um, perhaps more rigorous schools in some areas, but they are better than American kids at looking you in the eye and carrying on a cogent, somewhat adult conversation. So we can learn from that. Um, You know, I do have to say that um, it's so interesting because parents... I mean, kids don't even know how to write anymore because they te- not only do they text, but they text in code. So they're not even writing out full sentences. They're not writing out full words. Um, it is really scary. And we did talk to these parents um, because this is the biggest interest point right now all over the world is technology with their kids. Well, excessive technology and entitlement, the two kind of go together in right. parents' minds. You know, we're giving our kids too much stuff, they're not having to work, they're not having to earn, they're not having to take responsibility. And a lot of what we're giving them and a lot of the time they're spending when they should be disciplining themselves in other areas is in front of a screen or with their smartphone or on their social media. But we do suggest that parents, when you do give your, you decide it's the right time to give your child a phone or an iPad or... No, maybe not give it to them. Maybe have them earn it in some way. Or earn part of it. Uh, we we suggest that you never let a child own more than 49% so that you can have... Any electronic gadget. Any electronic gadget. But um, it's also really a good idea to have a contract with your kids. When you hand them a phone, you give them a contract with, you know, maybe 10 items. And we have a daughter who has a website called 71toes.com. And she has, if you go to that, 71toes.com, and just type in the search bar technology contract, you'll see what they did. They, I think they've simplified it since they posted that, but it will give you some good ideas because... You know, if there's a letter to the child, dear child, you know, we love you so much. You are now the proud in proud possession of something that we could not have imagined in our wildest dreams. And you own 49% of it, yeah. but we own the controlling interest. You will turn it in at the end of each day. You will not have it with you in your room at if, night. If mom or dad pops up on the screen, you must answer immediately. We, we, we will know, know all of passwords. your passwords, and, and there will be no secrets. We will be have access to everything on your gadget. It's a pretty tough contract, but believe me, kids will sign it when it's a question of that's the only way they're going to get the device. And, you know, if you've gone too far and I haven't thought of that, there's always a way to go back and um, try it again because there are. it is really important to limit the time that they spend on with technology. Just one more little thing about the global parenting business, and then I know, Linda, you want to talk for a minute about a very remarkable little kid who's very close to home. In fact, she's our little niece. That's something that's happening globally also. Something that's happening globally. But the last thought I had on global parenting is that, again, while we find these various cultural differences, 
and some of them are a little tragic. A, a lot of a lot of English parents, for example, and a lot of African parents um, who are reasonably well-to-do send their kids off to boarding schools when they're 12 years old, and we think that is so unfortunate. But it's a cultural norm, and we try not to be too critical. And while the kids miss a lot of things, we think it's tragic for them to miss in their families. They do get a tremendous education in some of these boarding schools, and they become extremely polite and socially competent there. So there's nothing that's all bad and nothing that's all good, but we can try to learn from everyone and do the best we can, and we can continually comfort ourselves in knowing that even though these cultural differences exist, the commonality, once again, to get back to that, between you as a parent and Arizona or Utah or California or wherever you're listening today have an enormous amount in common with any other parent anywhere in the world simply because the parent-child relationship is one of the same concerns, the same hopes, the same dreams, and the same quest to have kids have values and be, become responsible. So we're more united than we are fractured as parents in this world. Now, Another way that we often get united is through crisis, and we've run into many parents on this trip and all the time who have various crises, and, and we're experiencing one with a wonderful little niece of Linda's named Cammy. Actually, it's my sister's granddaughter, so it's a grandniece, I guess, but yeah. uh, she's eight years old. At four years old, she was diagnosed with leukemia, and for two and a half years, that little girl fought cancer like you've never seen. She is the bravest little thing you've, you've ever seen. Was she five or six? She was four. Four when she first started. And so she, after two and a half years, they thought, okay, we're cancer-free, we're home-free, this is awesome. And in remission. In remission, you know, 93% chance you will not have to experience this again. So um, in the meantime, after, after she was declared cancer-free, her dearest little friend that she'd met in the hospital during these things, and these kids have such a common bond because they're going through the same thing. Her dearest little friend named Millie passed away and just was not able to overcome. The cancer returned. And, and so um, she, Tammy, spoke at Millie's Funeral. An eight-year-old speaker at a funeral. And she was only seven then. And I mean, she was seven, and she was remarkable in her upbeat sort of way. And had the audience laughing, and, you know, just, it was wonderful. And then a few months later, she started having aches and pains in her big bones in her body, and they went in and realized that she was in relapse. So she's been back in the hospital since August, basically, in and out just a bit. Um, once in a while, they chemo uh, and chemo and radiation. Chemo and radiation. Again, but this time, also the yeah, bone bone marrow. Oh, sorry, I stole the punchline. Well, no, I was just going to say steroids is the worst, but yeah. you know, maybe not as bad as the bone marrow bone marrow transplant. They they have a bone marrow um, bank. And it's uh, national. Uh, there are millions, I guess, of people who, and it's so simple to contribute. You just have to swab your cheek. You just go to bethematch.org. They send you a kit in the mail. You swab your cheek with a cotton swab, put it in the envelope, and send it back. And then you're in the bank. And apparently, uh, there was one match 
perfect match for Cami. These DNA markers have to match up perfectly. And which is like a one in a million chance. I think they even said 10 million Maybe on the 10 TV. Million. It's just incredible to find a perfect match. They, they will do a transplant with a less than perfect match, but it has less of a chance, obviously, of taking hold and engrafting. So anyway, they did find this wonderful donor who was a young father who consented to the um, to donate his bone marrow. He doesn't know who it's going to, and they, they, they intentionally don't allow the donor to meet the patient. Right, for a year. For a year. Although he knows it's a child, and he knows he's saving her life. Yeah. And right. so that it's just been such a remarkable journey. And we just thought, once we get that bone marrow, everything's going to be fine. Well, guess what? First, they have to just about kill her. So radiation, again, until they've killed all of her own bone marrow so that this new bone marrow can take over her body. And what she had to go through in those 22 days until her body engrafted, you would not want to know. It was just horrendous. For the whole family. For the, For the whole, whole family. family especially her own mom and dad and her own little brother, but bless their hearts, they hung on, and there is a wonderfully happy ending. Well, I better not say ending, because it hasn't ended by any means. No, she did get to come home the day before Thanksgiving. And the, and the bone they marrow all rejoicing. It, it did engraft, and now she's in 100 days of isolation because her, uh, immunity, or her uh, immunity is zero. So... It really is a long, hard journey, but wow, but the, and the point, what they learned through that process. That's the point. The point is that uh, what we find with families all over the world, or as close to home as our own little grandniece, is that families really are pulled together and united by crises. And it doesn't have to be cancer. I mean, that's one of the worst crises you can imagine, but it can be a child who you know, is underperforming in an abysmal way. It can be some kind of a, a relationship problem in a family where people are determined to fix it and they come together. And so we all need to remember that family, everything begins and ends with family. You'd expect us to say that, but the fact is it's true. And the good things that happen in families and the bad things that happen in families need to be thought of as something that pulls people together and we need to learn from each other and do the best we can because family, when all is said and done, is all that matters. And if you want to read more about Cami, you can go to our Deseret News post called A World of Good. And you can just Google that and it will come right up and you can see her and see the TV shows that she's done. Absolutely amazing stuff. And we'll see you next week on Ayers on the Road. Who knows where we'll be? Bye-bye. 